0: I'm Alon Ben-Mir, and welcome back to a new episode of On the Issues. Today's guest is Mark Perini, former EU ambassador to Turkey, Tunisia, Libya, Syria, and Morocco, and currently a visiting scholar at Carnegie Europe. In this episode, we go in-depth on Turkey's Erdogan political future, Turkey's relation with Europe and the West and the future of Turkey within NATO. I, I read it, I think this is the beginning of Erdogan
1: sliding. Yeah. a lot of people say it's the beginning of the end. Uh, what I say is that it's an important signal. The end will not come without a fight, yeah, yeah. a big fight. Uh, the problem is that the tools with which Erdogan is equipped today are not the right tools to win this fight, mm-hmm. because uh, I think citizens of Turkey are smarter than that. Uh, people know what's in their wallet and what's in their bank and they know the economic policy is wrong mm-hmm. they know firing the central bank governor is wrong uh, you know all these things are pretty instinctive right? yes, yes so yeah. they know that the other very important factor, in my view, is that Erdogan still has a lot of followers, or the AKP has a lot of followers, but a lot of these people are much younger than the president, and they want to survive politically. And they see that he's he's, uh, taking them into a war. So dissent within the AKP is the big thing now. He's, he's of course, denying it. He will, of course, threaten a lot of people, uh, but it will happen. And, and that will, uh, you know, when and how big it is, uh, we'll, we'll see, but uh, it is signalling uh, that uh, the Turkish president has got himself into a dead end Ali.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, I think it is dead end for him, yeah. I mean, um, also his focus on his Islamic agenda, it's not helping. No. It's not helping. I mean, basically, you know, the Arab world is, you know, saying, stay away. We're not interested.
1: Yeah. But also, uh, if you look at, you know, one of the recurrent mistakes of Erdogan, which is about zero interest rates, uh, uh, because he's convinced, and he said it again a few hours ago, um, that uh, zero interest rates will bring zero inflation. You know, <laughs> absolute opposite of. Uh, what we we know as economic theory, but that this is rooted in religion, you know, Islamic banking. Exactly. And and uh, people in Turkey are just smarter than that. They they know it doesn't work. Uh, the average citizen knows it doesn't work, and is not going to go along with it. Simple. And and the problem is, of course, that you have a sort of compounding of these mistakes because in an any normal democracy, you have a pyramid of power. So you have counterpowers, you have advisors, you have the press, you have civil society, uh, you have the judiciary and so on. But now you have the vertical of power. Exactly. There's nobody to contradict him. Yeah. Um, and what we hear from you know, the Central Committee meeting in, in the past few weeks after the Istanbul defeat uh, is that some people still have the guts to say, Wrong uh, option, but then he gives them such a dressing down that uh, the others keep quiet, and and that was most probably the case for the rerun. The decision on the rerun of the Istanbul election was a tragic political mistake for for Erdogan, um, but you know he's probably at such a point in his political trajectory that he cannot conceive. Defeat, alternance, coalition, so what. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, That is not you. It happened in June 15, uh, happened again and again. But now we've come to the point that this absolute total belief that his mandate is the one that prevails uh, leads him to cancel an election that his candidate lost by 13,000 votes and second time they lose it by eight hundred and six thousand, yeah. which is tragic. Of yeah. yeah. Um, and the first reflex is we're going to indict him for something. We don't know quite what, but so that he cannot become the mayor. And you know that will not work. No, no. And needless to say, the image in Europe is a catastrophe.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been bad to begin with, uh, going back a number of years now. And what he's done in Istanbul, I think it's um, almost a kiss of death to some extent.
1: Yeah. Uh, Albeit
0: it may take a number of years, a few more years, but I don't think he's going to recover. Incidentally, in connection with that, other than losing Istanbul, that is the political environment in Turkey itself, that is the opposition. What, from your perspective, don't you feel that the progress they have made, translated so far in in um, Istanbul, that's going to transcend that? It's going to they're going to take it much further in the next couple of years, two or three years, yeah. and they will present significant challenge to him uh, than far more than what happened in the last year or so.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the Istanbul mayoral election shows that. Uh, the main opposition party can do things differently, can do things smartly. Yes, yes. And and they succeed, um, but that's not necessarily what will bring about change. Because to bring about change, you'll have to have a similarly successful strategy for the next presidential election, and we're not there yet. Um, what I think will come before that is uh, fragmentation in the AKP I don't believe that Davutoglu will have uh, a big uh, success but should Babajan and a few others create a new party that is almost guaranteed success in at least the economic and business field because uh, people even who are not with the AKP business circles, if you want, uh, understand that he's a credible man. Understand that uh, Bajamian has credibility on the markets, mm-hmm. uh, whereas currently the son-in-law has. I mean, he's a laughing stock in right. the, uh, <laughs> Frankfurt and New York. Uh, so, uh, you know, it can go on for a while. You can pump into reserves, sell these for that. There are many artificial things that you can do, um, but it cannot last forever. And Sorry. Turkey is a, a, an economy which is a structural deficit economy, doesn't have natural resources, doesn't save much because there's no confidence. Therefore you rely on influx of money and so far uh, the influx of money is Western. Yeah. except in the uh, construction field where it, it comes from the Gulf but that doesn't create uh, many jobs so unless you, s- you would assume that a, a miracle coalition between Saudi Arabia and China will uh, replace the IMF uh, Turkey is bound to uh, straighten up its its dead crunch somehow uh, uh, with the IMF but
0: he is also adding to that If you look at his um, policies, for example, Kurds is one issue. I mean, there's a great deal of money getting involved in that. His adventure in Syria. Then you have his investment in the Balkans, Uh, talking about hundreds of millions of dollars there. So his desire or ambition to expand Turkish influence costs money, and and he's doing it on borrowed money because he doesn't have the capital to do that. But nevertheless, he's putting that ahead of the economic conditions in Turkey itself. And that, I think, is adding to the deficits, of obviously, obviously, and to the economic strain that Turkey is going through. A big, you know, the question is, will he give up on this? And how soon will he be able to do that? And where the money is going to come from? I, I don't see economic salvation coming anytime soon as far as Turkey goes? The
1: problem, in my view, is that despite all the efforts with Gulf countries, with others, and if we take on the side the energy sector, which is entirely managed with Russia and Iran, but for economic investment except energy, Turkey still relies on international markets, on Europe, on the US. There's no... Escape from that yes yeah. export markets are basically in Europe. technology is basically European when it's not American, so there there we are, and that takes you immediately back to rule of law um, so um, you you know a lot of autocratic regimes get investments from the West, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, big places like China, where there is no uh, resemblance between their rule of law and, and Western rule of law, they still get huge investments from from the West. But in the case of Turkey, it's very close. It's deeply associated with the EU through the customs union, mm-hmm. um, and and the current economic policy and the current governance is wrecking all this. You know, investors are much more careful now. Um, of course, existing investments, if you take the prime example, which is the automotive industry, uh, from Europe, everybody is there. You know, the Germans, the French, the Italians, everybody is there. Uh, they have very successful operations, they're, they're quite happy, but there is a kind of underlying worry about the long term. Sorry, um, yeah. Similarly, uh, you have all the service industry of Europe, present on any street uh, in big cities in, in in Turkey. Banking, insurance, telephone, retail trade, everybody's there too. Uh, and this is a big market. Uh, used to be a very uh, uh, high-growth market. It's mm-hmm. less high, but still quite impressive compared to Western Europe. And, and these people are worried too. So it seems that you know, for political reasons, uh, the leadership in Turkey is now finding comfort in a relationship with the Russian president, with the Chinese president, uh, except that so far this hasn't brought any economic alternative right. to, to Turkey. Yeah. It may bring, uh, at least with Russia, a, a defense uh, alternative, but that is quite a momentous operation we'll see how this uh, unfolds uh, but it doesn't bring uh, alternative russia has no money to, in, to invest it doesn't bring technology so uh, this is what i call a dead end
0: yeah it is I, I i agree with you i want to touch on the issues of the s-400 the purchase of that in the core of course with the united states from as you see it why? A, why does Turkey need the S four hundred to begin with? <laughs> why is he uh, so adamant about you know the continuing the, the purchase and uh, of, of these missiles? And and uh, how is he justifying at least in his mind the the strained relationship with the United States, which is I don't want to say it's on the, it's breaking down, but it's very serious. No. I mean, I talk to people in the United States. I mean, this is quite serious. And and why do you see? Why do you think he is pursuing that, knowing with the United and knowing his lot, his future really rests with the West rather than Russia. But his closeness with Russia, his closing up to Putin, for all intents and purposes, doesn't seem to, f- to suit or sh- you know support Turkey's his future.
1: No. Uh, I'll say that we have several trends there. One is is, uh, something that uh, we could detect early on uh, in the AKP rule, 2003 onwards, uh, which is being the power in the middle, going back to, if not Ottoman times, but being equidistant from it, which in itself was already contradicting the uh, membership with NATO. Uh, and we saw that very early. Uh, the uh, AKP came to power in November 2002, and remember that the first blow to the relationship with the U.S. was 1st of March 2003, when the transit of U.S. troops to northern Iraq through uh, exactly. Turkey was mm-hmm. voted down by the parliament. Yeah. Uh, so it there is something there that it, that is... Uh, uh, yeah ideological the
0: beginning absolutely I think so
1: but there is something more recent, which is of course the post coup psychology and we have to remember that uh, this coup fifteenth of July two thousand sixteen was the most violent in in Turkish uh, republican history uh, in that it involved the air force and in a big way, bombing the parliament. Uh, the police headquarters as part of the presidential compound and, and, and intelligence. So it, it was quite a lot. Um, and it involved a lot of airplanes and refuelers and this and that. So so it, it was yeah. quite an extensive operation. And that created a fear factor, which in my view hasn't gone as of today, yes, yes. which is uh, the political leadership has been threatened by the Air Force. We need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if you look at what is surrounding Turkey and who you would have to defend yourself in terms of missile interception, well, you have Iran, but they're working with Iran. Yeah, absolutely. You have missiles uh, with Assad, but Assad is largely under the control of the Russians, and you have Russian missiles. So, And of course, you have some... Three, uh, three but the fact is,
0: in in Turkey is not threatened.
1: No, it's Turkey not threatened. is not threatened, yeah. and you don't have—I uh, mean—and you have NATO uh, of anti-missile system yeah. deployed in Turkey. You have several AWACS from NATO based in Konya Air Force Base. Right uh, you have the NATO missile defense shield radar in Malatya. So you have a lot of infrastructure to deal with, and you have a lot of solidarity from NATO. Uh, so, in principle, you don't need that. So. What I see is, number one, a personal fear factor, need to protect myself, the president.
0: From whom, though?
1: Yeah. And and (laughs) second, I see a a sort of opportunistic move by Russia, very early on. That is, if you remember the sequence, three weeks after the coup, the first visit, uh, foreign visit of Erdogan was to St. Petersburg, to Putin, and this is when... The discussion on missile defense started. Mm-hmm. So, um, my analysis, of course, you know, foreigners are always in a tricky position when they try to <laughs> understand <laughs> Turkey. Yeah, you know, and Bono, the, the leader of the YouTube group, famously said in in, in uh, 2009 when he got entangled in a in, in a political thing when he was giving a big concert in Istanbul. He said, Who am I to judge uh, Turkey's history and culture and so on? But what I see is inevitably, in the context of Russia's policy towards NATO and towards the European Union, an opportunistic move to infiltrate uh, Turkish Air Force with uh, 100, 200 uh, Russian specialists, through the sale of these uh, s 4 Exactly. missiles. Exactly. So uh, it may, it, if you want, give comfort or some comfort to the president of Turkey, may not actually reassure much his military because they know technically it's not the kind mm. of gear they need. Uh, but it is a fantastic opportunity move by, by Putin to uh, create havoc within NATO within, the,
0: within, the, within NATO, within the yeah. EU, there is no question. I mean, Putin' purpose is divide and conquer. Yeah. I mean, that is what he's trying to do. Now, from uh, as I see it, let continue. Basically, we'll continue for a moment as far as this, the process of 400, with with Erdogan' ambition to project to some extent the the Ottoman Empire, and that is many of his activities today. And he speak about it. No. It's not a, it's not a secret anymore that he wants to restore elements. Elements. Do you do you see connection between the purchase of this S four hundred and his ambition to? You know, I agree with you. What the Russian wanted to do, so it's of their interest. But his interest it's not exactly defense, but a prestige that is. If I want to restore elements of the Ottoman Empire, I better show serious, serious muscles. No. and that adds to you know. What what do you think of that?
1: Well, I, what I see here is is essentially returning to a degree of strategic, diplomatic, political autonomy. Uh, the power in the middle. Nobody is going to uh, give us orders anymore. We're not. We can be in NATO but we can be allied uh, with Russia, we can be allied with China, we can be allied with Gulf countries. Um, so if not a recreation of the Ottoman Empire, of course, because no, that's not the happen, parameters obviously. have uh, changed entirely, but it, it is a, a willingness to be autonomous, to move towards an autonomous defense industry, for which they have the potential. But at the same time, uh, this strategy fails to take into account uh, the the parameters that you cannot change. So, you know, S-400s are not only incompatible with NATO systems, and it doesn't suffice to say they're not going to be connected, but no, they are also uh, a device not the missile itself, of course, but the radar and its acquisition systems uh, that will undermine not only future uh, assets of the Turkish Air Force like the F-35, but also existing assets, F-16 and, oh, same, and same, so on yeah. and so forth, which, of course, the Russians are going to exploit extensively. So this kind of contradict. I mean, there is a kind of bold move in general terms but it's as if nobody had thought of the implications okay and to this day at least if you refer to public statements in Osaka at the G20 or after Osaka when coming back you have a Turkish president who says no no I'm immune from any sanction I have a great understanding and friendship with Donald Trump this will not come well you bet but uh, I, that's what not what I read. Uh, yeah, I from mean, Washington.
0: I mean, still, he, he wants to have it both ways. It's not going to work, especially with the Trump. Trump doesn't have strategic depth. You know, he's not he's not going for it, based on what we hear from going from the State Department. This is this is my way or the highway, so to speak, as far as Trump is concerned. Mm-hmm. So, let me ask you one more question about this. Now, there's some talks. Some talks. I I, I don't think it's um, you tell me if we think it's how serious it is. What's the prospect of, given the situation and given what Erdogan has been doing in the last seven, ten, ten years at least? What is the prospect of him, of Turkey remaining uh, as a member of NATO?
1: Well, I think uh, members of NATO generally will make every effort to avoid uh, Turkey moving out. What I see is, assuming for a minute that the S-400 are delivered and become operational, I see a series of consequences uh, falling one after the other. Mm -hmm. Not delivering the F-35, kicking Turkey out of the F-35 industrial program. That is the immediate uh, uh, aftermath. And then instead of, of course, we'll have conservative forces in the U.S., advocating that NATO uh, Turkey may, may, may be kicked out of NATO. But what we'll see is st- sort of small installments. That's right. Uh, that is, Turkey being removed from some NATO programs that are mm-hmm. more sensitive than others, mm-hmm. like intelligence on the Russians and that sort of thing. Uh, it is a quite a complicated operation because of course. you have uh, NATO operations NATO headquarters in quite a number of uh, countries from okay. Turkey to, to Virginia uh, so uh, you'll have to sort of uh, you know extricate uh, Turkish officers Turkish assets and so on from one to the there but that will be the normal reflex if suddenly the judgment is that Turkey has moved from a solid transatlantic alliance country to a country that you cannot fully trust anymore. Uh, And you may, at the extreme end of that spectrum, in my view, uh, end up with a situation like France in the 60s, that is Turkey in NATO politically and Turkey out of NATO militarily. The difference, of course, being that this was the De Gauls' uh, decision yeah. to take yeah. France out. In that case, it would be NATO decision. But of course, these things can evolve over time, uh, especially because you have uh, a serious degradation of uh, Erdogan's own strengths domestically. So people will uh, inevitably factor in the fa- the, the the hypothesis that he might not be president after 2023 I think I think that's
0: probably the calculation too to uh, I, I don't believe I mean
1: <coughs> you know NATO or big uh, international political architectures they are like super tankers and they don't make u-turns uh, very quickly
0: that's right that's right I mean basically we say about the same thing with Trump you know uh, that, well, we had uh, yesterday like conversation with some member uh, the EU and and um, um, this is exactly the question. I mean, they are arguing Trump is basically destroying some of the fundamentals of the alliances and all of that. My position is that wait a minute. You know, uh, the, the alliance is so deep and so so yeah. has has survived so for so long seven seven decades. is not something to sniff at, yeah. and that uh, one president, perhaps just one term. It's not going crazy. It has caused some harm, but that is not irreversible.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, to me, to me, it's it's quite uh, an interesting evolution. You know, I'm I'm a baby boomer, so I was born the year before the Berlin airlift and the uh, creation of the Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm. I uh, was fed uh, from the Marshall Plan. Uh, two years later, a year later, was the creation of NATO. I didn't know about that, of course. And, and then the Schumann Declaration in 1950. And now, we have, for the first time in 70 years, a U.S. president who's openly hostile to the European endeavor. Uh-huh. Supported Brexit, and this and that, and the rest. So it's, it's quite a shock. I mean, and it's not just my modest personal history. Remember the statement by Merkel, Exactly two years ago, in May, at the end of the first NATO summit that uh, Trump attended, she said, "We are on our own.
0: We have to defend ourselves." Yeah, so, yeah we have. Yeah. So
1: it is a huge political shock. Uh, but uh, I would um, tend to think that people will say, "Well, it is one term." Or maybe two terms, but it's not for eternity. Let's hope.
0: Well, that's that's that's. I mean, that's a position I take in terms yeah. of the importance of the alliance. Transcend yeah. one bad president, yeah. whether it's one or even two terms. Of course, two terms are going to make some of the damage will be a little bit more serious. But uh, but still, America is America. The alliance is an alliance. Things can be reversed. Albeit uh, it's going to be painful, but for a while.
1: I mean, it it may uh, or it may not. We'll see. But uh, we'll see with the new leadership in, in in European institutions, in particular. It may have an effect, a positive effect on on European cohesiveness, if you want. Uh-huh. It may accelerate um, European defence industry uh, efforts. Uh, and this is more than time, you know. The, mm-hmm. the number of different airplanes, different tanks, and yeah. so on that we, we're using in Europe is, is absolutely ludicrous. It, it creates a lot of uh, uh, in, in unnecessary expenditures and so that's on. That's right. So that, that's one thing. Uh, it may also, although perhaps more difficult, create you know a wake-up call in terms of uh, foreign policy efforts. If you look at Uh, Syria, of course, the French and the British are present on the ground. The Germans are helping from the air and a few others have helped and so on. But there is no very cohesive attitude there, especially no diplomatic presence. Mm -hmm. You you have these instances that are totally uh, paradoxical where you have a Lisbon Treaty that says, let's create a foreign policy, Mm -hmm. high representative and this and that and the rest. Three Syria conferences in the spring of 17, 18 and 19. Mm -hmm. But then when Erdogan and Putin invite Merkel and Macron to Istanbul for a conference on Syria, suddenly there is no more EU there. The EU dimension is not visible. That is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and that happens, and then out of nowhere, the president of the United States removes half or says, I'm removing everybody from northeastern Syria. <laughs> it ends up being only half, and they're still working on the safe zone and so on, and they're still trying to convince uh, some uh, European countries to sort of patch up uh, with, with special forces or what. There should be a new approach there well that's, I, mean,
0: I can't can really expect any cohesive uh, no strategy as far as the united states is concerned. i mean exactly you know one day he woke up in the morning that's where the driver forces then the defense secretary resigned. Yeah. then he realizes it's a little bit more serious than i thought <laughs> so now like exactly so he's keeping some but you know <laughs> in,
1: indirectly you know this discussion that ambassador jeffrey is having with these two different hats about uh, Syria, this could be hooked up with the EU with the new leadership, uh-huh. and could lead to something positive. You know, um,
0: but don't you think? I'm sorry to start to interrupt, but don't you think? Um, well, you 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 know very well how the role of Russia in, in, in Syria. I mean, it is really um, probably the most important player in in Syria today, notwithstanding. The, the, the European position, the United yeah. States position, that is not much can happen unless Russia is in the mix and agree to these person. So, so how do you reconcile that? That is, no matter what you think, regardless of cohesiveness, specific approach, specific strategy, Russia will have to be part and parcel of, of any future solution. To, and the Russians so far has been the obstacle in the United Nations and elsewhere because as long as they want to maintain instability because it serves their interest, they're going to continue to do that. How do you change that?
1: Well, um, if it can be changed. Maybe uh, my view is is somewhat naive, but uh, I would say that uh, as long as only the United States and on some very specific instances like bombing bases where chemical weapons were used France and the UK, uh, are involved to sort of contain Assad and therefore contain Russia, uh, well, Russia will have the upper hand. Now, if the United States manages to satisfy Turkey with a safe zone, concentrate their troops close to the border, uh, and if there is a cohesive Approach between the US and the EU on beefing up an European presence in the rest of this northeastern corner uh-huh. of Syria, then you make the uh, Western presence at Geneva at the time, whatever the time is, uh, stronger than it is today.
0: It would be stronger, but would that be sufficient or to, to, to change the dynamics?
1: That is, uh, of course, the most difficult question, especially uh, because uh, there are very wide divergences between Russia and the West on the governance of Syria. So,
0: from your vantage point, what do you think the Russian int- ultimate goal is? I mean, they've been in Syria for 50 years now. There's nothing in you. I have military base, naval base. I have a military. Now they have an
1: air force base. I have everything.
0: What it is? What is the ultimate goal?
1: Well, you know, when I was uh, EU ambassador to Syria, I could see uh, Russian military gear just about everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, generally broken down by the roadside, but uh, uh, they were there, of course. Um, they have achieved uh, a few things. They have rescued... Uh, lie was about to collapse in 2015. They have set up an Air Force base that is there to stay. Right. They're not going to back up and go, Exactly. obviously, so they can serve other purposes. And they have uh, made a, a number of military demonstrations, yeah. you know, cruise missiles and this and that. Uh, so it's, it's good for military exports but more importantly they have set foot in the eastern Mediterranean in a much bigger way than ever before and uh, this is uh, not visible every day but this goes along with an energy strategy energy politics is a very important thing in in Russia and they have set foot in uh, Egyptian gas exploration Lebanese gas exploration uh, Iraqi Kurdistan uh, oil and gas exploration, their friends with AFTAR so and of course pipeline to to Turkey, nuclear plant in Turkey, so there is also a, a, an energy diplomacy, if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that that is the the important uh, element.
0: But then, would um, would you think that? at one point or another, just to, to uh, secure these assets or these, you know, these, um, this ambition or strategy related to oil and all of that. Wouldn't, wouldn't in the end stability in Syria serve put in interest more or continuing the uproar or the instability serve his interest? That is, unless he already achieved what he thinks achieves his goals, then what?
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, that is where the fundamental notions of governance uh, differ totally. Uh, You know, you look at it from the current news about Idlib. Russia and Idlib, this is the Grozny strategy. You kill everybody and then you talk. Uh, And no Western country will uh, operate in, in that way. But at one point... Reality will will prevail. My fear is that if the uh, governance of Syria is not fixed in a sensible way, then you know the Assad clan will remain in power, will use their tragic habits of uh, killing and torturing and so on, and um, people will not return. And this will become a very minor country.
0: Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, Putin, Russia itself um, will continue to support Assad as long as he continues to serve Russia's interest. Yeah. So they have no no interest in weakening Assad at this point. Not now. Not in the foreseeable future. The way yeah, I see. Yeah, but
1: it. at the same time, there are no, so far at least, safe discoveries offshore. Um, gas discoveries of, shows of, of Syria there is no major resource in, in, in Syria that would you know uh, really uh, warrant uh, a long time support to Assad himself now it may change you may be willing to export Iraqi Kurdistan oil and gas through yeah Syria. but yeah, I mean it's not France. reliance on Syrian
0: uh, oil because it's very limited it's very yeah, small it's limited yeah export. but uh, but it's like exactly what you said before, from Syria, Putin can project sure. right, it's himself, you know, it's, you know yeah. much of the eastern Mediterranean. At the end
1: of yeah. September 2015, I used the word Assad land, a Russian protectorate. <laughs> yeah. And so far, <laughs> that's what it remains. Uh,
0: right. One, one, one more question about turkish relation in connection with, with the Kurds in Syria. Well, I mean, to me, uh, the whole approach, and uh, one approach, is all entirely contrived. Uh, I mean, he would like to associate the Syrian Kurds with the PKK. I don't think, yes, there is some level of uh, cooperation of sort, but he, this is entirely a completely different agenda for him, because his position vis-à-vis the Kurdish as people, both in Turkey itself, be that in certainly in Syria, to some extent, of course, still in Iraq, and as well as that, concerned much about the Kurds in Iran. Where do you think that's going now?
1: Well, so far, the theory is that, of course, PYD, YPG, and the PKK are one and the same thing. And uh, it is hammered through government media so often that most of the Turks I know, including anti-AKP Turks, believe it yes, um, the the issue is is of course there are connections uh, the issue is can be resolved by military and diplomatic agreements there are ways to uh, make sure that none of the u uh, s military gear that has been given to the Syrian Kurds ends up in 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 Turkey. it's not too difficult I mean this is a Fairly uh, easy border to control overall. I mean, between the Euphrates River and the Tigris River. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that can be solved. Uh, then, what is more important is what is Erdogan going to do with the Turkish Kurds? Uh, well, exactly. He had a peace process going. Yeah, and he stopped it all which, of a sudden. Which was completely stopped and and yes. forgotten. In july 15 because of domestic politics uh-huh. um, and you know for the same domestic political reasons he may be willing to return to it at one point
0: yeah i mean and i think uh, i think that that was a terrible mistake on his part you know because i mean you're talking about the kurds in turkey this is a reality he has to deal with in one form or another Linking them somewhat artificially to the with the situation with Syria was not the wise thing but to it, do. But it
1: was basically domestic politics. It yeah. was the inability or unwillingness to accept the results of a democratic election that would have brought the Kurdish party into third place yeah. and would have warranted a coalition government. But that is not within the sphere of Edouard's view of power. That's
0: right. I mean, he thought he can, you know, the fact that he still did not understand that regardless of what political consideration at the time, the Kurdish problem is not going to disappear. It's going to have to come around. And still deal with it, yeah. and and that's where he, yeah. he find himself now. Yeah.
1: You know, one other thing that is striking to me, and you can see it from the missile deal, from the Kurdish issue, from the economic issues. That today we see that a lot of European leaders, members of the European Council, would want to work with Turkey mm-hmm. to, you know. Drive Turkey towards an IMF deal and be supportive with investment and customs union modernization and so on. Be more cooperative on defense and everything you can think of. Except that the dialogue is not there anymore. That's right. And and the the root for that is number one, the very insulting uh, words of 2017 to Germany, but to everybody else in Mm -hmm. Europe. If they were not ashamed, they would reignite the gas chambers. You know, this yeah. is the core of the European construction. Mm-hmm. If you start going after that, you cannot talk anymore. So that's a, bur- a bridge that has been burned, and it's a really uh, a pity. And, and the second thing is, is that as much as a German chancellor, a French president, or anybody else in the European Council would be willing to do something positive with Turkey, they have a parliament, national parliament, and a European parliament to say, hey, no, exactly. not until they return exactly. to a decent degree of rule of law. Exactly. and exactly. Whether and this and is understood or not in Ankara? I, I don't know.
0: think so. I don't think he's going to do any kind of reform, be that social political, not at this juncture. And I think it's a bit too late. And those who believe that he might, I think it's demonstrating some naivete. The same is not going to happen. I'm, I can't thank you enough. You know, this is a very important topic. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my soundcloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.